Red Apple Media Podcast Network presents This is Protecting America. Now, here's Emmy-winning journalist Rita Cosby. And welcome to another edition of Protecting America. I'm Rita Cosby. This week was a historic moment when former President Donald Trump was on the witness stand in the New York civil fraud case against him, lodged by New York Attorney General Letitia James. But is Trump being treated like any other citizen in our country? Or is this election interference, as Trump himself alleges? Well, joining us now to discuss this and how he did on the stand is the great former federal prosecutor, Doug Burns. Doug, great to have you here. Thanks, Rita. Appreciate it. How unusual was it to see a former president of the United States on the witness stand? I mean, that is wild. There he is testifying, you know, on his own behalf, fighting it tooth and nail. But how unusual was it to see that moment? Well, it's interesting because in my travels of reading various articles, I came across the fact, this is interesting, that Theodore Roosevelt testified twice in civil actions um, as a former president of the United States of America. Really quick, in one, he sued a publication for libel, um, and in the other one, he had accused a New York politician of being corrupt, and that corrupt, the person who he called corrupt sued him, and he testified twice. And in one of the cases, don't remember which one, he was on the stand for eight days. So that being said, it's still <laughs> <Wow>. incredibly, <laughs> yeah, still amazingly unusual, obviously. But there are three, you know, fundamental problems with the case really quick. And, you know, what I'm proud of to bring to the table, I'm not kidding, is that you know, here's a person, me, I've been doing uh, this type of work for 38 years, and I'm telling you that there are three problems with this case. Number one, you had an elected official running for office campaigning specifically on getting a particular person. I won't even make it, you know, about the specifics. I'm just giving it like a law school classroom. Number two, in the case, there's no loss, as you've heard. And I do want to clear something up about that really quick. Um because it's it's not dispositive that there's no loss. Aha, that's it. But let me explain. When I worked in the United States Attorney's Office, we did a lot of what we call intake work. Federal agents would come in, they would present new cases, and they would say, uh, in this case, John Smith, that's a hypothetical name, he certified on bank loan applications, Mr. Burns, that he made $300,000 a year. He was actually making 62000 He got the loans. Bah, bah, bah. First thing we ask, well, wait a minute, what's the status of the loan? And in my hypothetical here, their faces might turn a little shade of crimson as they say, well, Mr. Burns, the loans have fully performed. And we would very diplomatically say, okay, thanks for bringing the case in. And we appreciate it, but you know, we're going to decline it. I'm sure you can understand there's no loss, et cetera, et cetera. Now, here's the reason why this is so cynical, though, because the completed offense is lying on the form. That's it. End of story. But in the real world, um, if there's no loss, the cases aren't accepted uh, for prosecution. So Letitia James may be a little smarter than people realize because she knows that technically, um, if there were exaggerations of values and so on, there's technical liability. But it's an incredibly weak case when there's absolutely no loss. Next, the bank's do tremendous due diligence of their own, okay? Um, so, so 
to say that they relied on what he said it was worth can easily be disproven in a court of law. Okay, next, there are some disclaimers in the paperwork saying that while we're making these representations, we do disclaim, you know, on certain aspects of the accuracy. And then you get, lastly, real quick into the political stuff. Uh, the judge should not, in my view, have ruled on liability as early as he did, because this hearing now is supposed to be about damages simply, but no, it's more like a hearing about liability. And you literally had a judge say yesterday, I'm not here to listen to what he has to say. And that's actually shocking. But again, let me be fair. I think the context of that, and I would have had to have been in the courtroom, the context was more like, as you make these side political speeches, you know, not answering the question, that's what I'm not here to listen to. But at the same time, on appeal, trust me, it's going to hurt the state's efforts. So I think there are a lot of serious problems with this case, Rita. Yeah. Now, you brought up a lot of great points. Uh, first, let's go to, as you talked about, the summary judgment. He already decided on the merits of the case. Were you surprised that this judge did that? Um, because obviously he has the right to do that. That was a big victory for the attorney general. But doesn't that already taint the case from the get-go that he just made the ruling and now it's, as you point out, it's really just the penalty phase? No question about it, Rita. And the point is, um, on a summary judgment motion, the test is that there's no issue of fact to be tried. So we'll use a quick law school classroom hypothetical. You know, uh, I borrowed $100. You know, there's all the paperwork. And I never paid it back, and it's crystal clear, you know, just again, hypothetically. So a judge issues a summary judgment ruling here. Um, for the judge to have ruled on summary judgment as early as he did um, really sets up a lot of red flags because, again, if there were, I mean, let's assume, for example, again, you know, we love hypotheticals, that. You know, the individual borrowed a thousand dollars, okay, lied to get it, never paid the money back, and that was all crystal clear um, on the papers. Then summary judgment's appropriate. But here's the really bad news for the state, um, and that is that. You know, if the defense start calling bankers, okay, <laughs> which I'm just starting to think about as I'm following this case, who say things like, look, we didn't feel we were deceived. Um, you know, these loans were paid back. They did try to throw a Hail Mary, interestingly enough, Rita. And the Hail Mary was, oh, no, 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 just because all of the money was paid back. No, what happened was he got more favorable deals. So they actually lost a lot of money. That would actually sort of be laughed at, honestly, in the real world. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. Yeah, and there's even uh, on the Trump side saying that these people made money, that they actually made money. So to your point about victims, there doesn't seem to be any victims. And you could make the case that they did all well and they got paid back. So uh, it was a plus, not a negative. Yes, but again, it's this artificial academic distinction. So let me repeat at the, uh, you know, fearing being a broken record, but hear me out. If an individual overstates, 
you know, assets, gets a loan and pays it all back, they are still liable in this case because it's civil or guilty in a criminal case because the completed offense is simply lying to obtain the loan. But again, as you just pointed out, and it's worth just hammering this home, um, if these bankers were paid back in full, um, you know, it's interesting, Reed, a quick digression, and that is that after 38 years of doing this, and I'm glancing over at my beloved sketch of Sherlock Holmes, I'm not kidding. The point is, we try to figure out what's really going on, okay? So let me explain to everybody what's really going on. Donald Trump, it's no secret, you know, was very uh, obsessed, very into his net worth, the Forbes list, and all of that. And he got, you know, very, very competitive about it, and so on and so forth. And it was very much on his mind, apparently, all of the time. So... If he said that the apartment in Trump Tower was 30,000 square feet, for example, when it was 10 or 11, if he said it was worth X dollars when it was worth, you know, half of that, okay, you can pull out your dictionaries, everybody, and look up unethical, you can look up immoral, but you ain't going to see illegal, okay? That's interesting. Now, let me also tell you, Doug, it looks like in New York State that they have never brought a case on someone who maybe inflates their net worth, all these different allegations. Doesn't that look like selective prosecution? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this, I'm not the expert here, um, you know, but I've read and digested by osmosis, you know, the sort of, you know, dark underworld, we're going to call it, of big-time New York real estate. A lot of experts almost chuckled, laughed. They're like, a lot of those initial valuations the banks realize are just an initial number. Again, to an expert like me who's been litigating cases for 38 years, you can see that this is just an absurd over the ski tips, you know, thing. And then I have to throw in the irresistible editorial of when I analyze this case, I don't care if the person we're talking about is Mother Teresa or Charles Manson. It doesn't matter. Okay. I analyze the case on the merits. So, you know, people, you know, come up to me, how can you defend him? You know, Alan Dershowitz suffers from that, you know, more than me, and it really bothers him because he's not a Trump supporter, okay, and he's a Democrat and so forth. So, again, I'm not defending the person. I'm just telling you legal X's and O's based on decades of experience. And it looks to you, what, like that this is just pulling a straw, right? Yeah, this is a case that is not brought Okay, because there's no loss. Nobody lost any money. Okay, this is not a viable case to be bringing. Okay, the person bringing the case, the state attorney general, specifically campaigned in a political campaign. I'm going to go after this person, this judge's behavior. And I say this quite carefully, actually. Um, I've dealt with, you know, hundreds of judges. Uh, but the point is, he seems to be very, very biased against Trump. Um, he ruled, you brilliantly pointed out, you know, this summary judgment ruling was very premature, in my opinion. And then again, even discounting the context for a judge, and not to be overly dramatic, I've never heard this in 38 years to say, I'm not here to listen to what he has to say. I'll tell you something interesting, and I'm not being cute here. The movie My Cousin Vinny, okay, everybody thinks it's so funny. That's fine. But the movie made a very powerful uh, point. Okay, and I wrote an article about this that was on uh, in the New York Law Journal, no joke. And the point was Fred Gwynn, who I always liked as an actor, he played Herman Munster, of course. He was the judge in the case. 
And when it started becoming apparent that there was pro-defense information coming out, because the two individuals were not guilty of this you know, murder at the Sackasuds convenience store, he sat forward in his chair and he earnestly, legitimately wanted to hear the evidence. That is not what is going on in this case. And it's really pretty disgraceful to see it. And it's going to be very, very interesting um, because I'll tell you what, this judge did not want to hear anything that helps the defense side of the case. And that is truly pretty disgraceful. Yeah, it seemed when Trump got on the stand, too, even if you don't like his answer, why not at least let him speak? And then he looked at also Trump's attorneys and said, can't you rein in your client? Trump is saying, I'm trying to explain. He kept cutting him off and saying, just give me a yes or no answer. Uh, It seemed very, it seemed like you said, very heavy handed. Just let him speak. If this is his moment to talk, you have the former president of the United States. Let him speak. They don't want to hear on many levels, sorry to interrupt you, they don't want to hear on many levels what he has to say. Um, a lot of what he has to say is, you know, that as somebody who's been in the rough and tumble, sharp elbow world of New York City, big time commercial real estate for decades and decades, um, you know, don't tell me with a straight face that you have this sanctimonious I'll call it prosecution, but it's a civil case, but they use the term prosecute a civil case. But you're standing there, you know, prosecuting this civil action against me and my company, uh, you know, again, when in fact there were no losses at all. And, and But again, I think it's going to be really interesting to see, because I'm not going to prejudge it either, by the way. I need to see it. Let's see what some of the so-called defense witnesses have to say. And more importantly, to your point, sort of reading your mind, let's see how the judge, Rita, you know, how does he react when there is information uh, theoretically, coming out that favors the defense, stuff like banks do their own due diligence. You know, banks um, don't rely 100% on what the individual says. They themselves figure out the asset valuation, et cetera, et cetera. If information like that starts being developed, man, that's going to be, uh, I'm not reluctant to use the word embarrassing for this judge, no? But although it doesn't seem like he cares because he seems to just be like doing his own thing. The other thing I found interesting too, um, Doug Burns, was that Trump said at one moment, I have this piece of paper. It basically is a disclaimer. In other yep. words, banks have to do their own due diligence. Even if we give you this estimate, uh, banks, any bank worth its grain of salt, whether it's told that or not, will do their own due diligence because you're talking about such big money when you're talking about real estate assets, especially these kind of things. Isn't it almost, it was stunning that, oh, well, well, I don't care about that because really it does also rest on them checking up. I could say, hey, look, I love that shirt you have on. God, I would love to buy it for uh, $20 and you come back and say, well, to me, it's worth $200. Isn't a lot of it in the eye of the beholder and real estate seems to be that? Well, yeah, but I mean, also the point is, this isn't some, a lot of these properties, these aren't obscure properties. And I'm not denigrating, you know, obscure properties, but take a property in the middle of nowhere in a rural area. Okay, that's one discussion. But these are a lot of these assets are signature major buildings. It is not hard to figure out what they are worth. Okay, Um, you know, all of us with residential, we look at sites all day long. I'd be driving along with my wife. And, oh, that house is beautiful. What's the address? And we find out what it's worth in two minutes on our phone, okay? So the point is, this is really just hysterically over the ski tips. You know, another point is that, you know, Letitia James, 
she stood up after the sons testified and she said, and I really thought it was idiotic, and his two sons testified today. Notice what she didn't say. She didn't say they testified against him because they didn't. She didn't say, and their testimony was helpful to the state's civil action because it wasn't. So again, to a veteran trial lawyer, very, very troubling to see her essentially misleading people who don't know much, you know, necessarily about trials. Okay. They would never be called as witnesses in a normal case, a day-to-day case, which isn't a political theatrical spectacle. Why would they not be called? Because they don't help the state's case at all, Rita. That's an interesting point, um, because a lot of people said, wow, this is really heavy-handed. I mean, you look at all the cases just overall against Trump, but in this particular case, the fact that they forced the kids to be on the stand, Donald Trump's kids, isn't that unseemly? It's absolutely unseemly, only because they don't offer anything that helps your case. So again, back to the classroom, here we go. You know, let's assume these witnesses had been locked in, we call it, in depositions, saying, wild hypotheticals, these are just from the classroom. I specifically spoke to the other defendant, and we said, yes, we're going to inflate this. Yes, we know it's worth $100. We're going to put down that it's worth 100000 That's called evidence in the real world. Instead, they call the witnesses... And they say things like, we relied on the accountants. And by the way, the liberal media immediately called that, you know, deflecting, you know, and it's just, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's it's extremely embarrassing uh, for me, who's litigated real world cases for 38 years now, to watch this type of spectacle unfold. It's, 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 it's like Alice in Wonderland, up is down, down is up. These witnesses, again, did absolutely nothing, zero, for the state's case. You know, you talked about a real estate values, too, and the fact that Mar-a-Lago, his big signature property, of course, in Florida, is so well-known. And what's interesting is they cited a valuation of $18 million, the judge did, um, getting it from somewhere. Trump says it's a lot more. Um, if you look at properties that are even near Mar-a-Lago, Doug Burns, there's some that are much smaller than that. I think it's a residential one that's like $30 million. <laughs> I'm I, laughing. I mean, I mean, come on. I'm laughing because on TV about two weeks ago, uh, I said that, you know, my wife and I were driving on South Ocean Boulevard this winter in Palm Beach. We're visiting some friends down there and back to Zillow right on the phone. Uh, my wife casually said, oh, look at that house over there. That's nice. That's $20 million. And look at this one. It's $30 million. You could put the entire house in the garage of Mar-a-Lago, okay? Right, exactly. So that's why it just seems so uh, crazy that he would go, okay, well, that's like me saying, okay, well, uh, that $300 shirt really looks like $20. So I'm just going to say it's $20 when you have a receipt that says it's 200 But again, know? look at the good news. The good news is, is that this judge... You know, trial lawyers also are appeals lawyers, and that's extremely important, okay? And we know, uh, as we're conducting a trial, we know that there are certain things that you do not want to see happen. So the first thing you don't want to see happen is for a judge, even, you know, given the context, saying, I'm not here to listen to what the defendant has to say in my courtroom. That's a hugely problematic statement. Number two, deciding the case too early, major red flag. Number three, 
getting all bent out of shape, uh, almost science fiction level, about his clerk and everybody's attacking his clerk. Trump made a comment about, you know, both you, Judge, and the person next to you. It was clear that he was referring to Michael Cohen, by the way. Um, and the judge was all fixated that it was the clerk. And so the point is, and then, you know, the judge just continues making mistakes. And why am I rambling? Because value, valuing Mar-a-Lago, built, by the way, for history buffs by Marjorie Merriweather Post, yep. whose father created Post Serial. That's a huge, you know, situ- thing. And she was one of the wealthiest heiresses in the United States and quite a formidable and accomplished woman, by the way. That's another seminar. Uh, she acquired bird's eye frozen foods for the company after her father had died, which was a big thing. And she was an amazing woman. But she built Mar-a-Lago in the late 20s. Um, and the point is, this valuation of $18 million is another huge red flag that is going to help the defense in the appellate courts, in my opinion. So you believe already there are clear grounds for appeal in this case? Because I don't Absolutely. think it doesn't look like he's going to get a fair shake, uh, at least this go round with this judge. Well, the judge is already, sorry to interrupt you, as you pointed out, the judge has already ruled on liability. And now we're in a situation where we're essentially litigating liability if if everybody would just listen to both sides a little bit. So I think the case is full of problems. And, you know, I go to school on other experts, obviously, and I've heard a number of experts say that they feel that there are going to be big problems for the state on appeal. Yeah, it looks like that already. And what a mess this case is. Well, everybody, be sure to subscribe and share to this podcast. Doug Burns, really great to have you here and get your great legal insight. And uh, and I am glad that it didn't go on for eight days, this testimony, <laughs> like Theodore Roosevelt did in the holy old times. But it was great to hear that. That was an interesting nugget. You know, I thought that was very interesting. And uh, you know, uh, actually, a book was written. I'm not going to plug it. Uh, has nothing to do with me. But a book was written about that one of the trials with T.R., you know, describing it as the trial of the century back when it happened in 1915, by the way. And it was a politician. I think his name was Bryant. I could be wrong, but certainly very similar, who sued T.R. And it was a pretty big deal. The case was in upstate New York. Well, now there's another case uh, for this century, right, Doug Burns? You got it. <laughs> And everybody, I'll be back soon with another great edition of Protecting America. And of course, you can catch me every weeknight, 10 p.m. to midnight, on the legendary WABC Radio. This is Rita Cosby, and thanks for all you do to protect America. America.